I have been following the history of El Museo de Calamar Gigante, the giant squid museum in Luarca, northern Spain. It's run by a marine conservation group, and it claims to be the only museum in the world dedicated to the giant squid, which I suppose I can believe. Pretty easily, in fact. It is a first-class attraction, says one resident of Luarca. No one on planet Earth has a museum devoted to the form, the history, and many aspects of the giant squid. Indeed. Apparently a pretty high percentage of washed-up giant squid specimens land here on the shores of Asturias, on the Spanish Atlantic coast. So the museums had plenty of material for exhibitions. And it sounds like they've had support from those who live in Luarca. But it also seems to have been doomed from nearly the very beginning. You see, the Museum of Giant Squid opened in summer 2010. But only a handful of weeks later, a big storm caused a huge amount of damage that forced the doors to close for some months. After that, it had a good couple of years. But in 2014, another massive storm hit the museum site and demolished it again. A number of the preserved squid specimens were destroyed. And some, it's strange to say, were swept back out to sea. The damage was extensive. And then a few days after the storm, vandals broke into the museum, smashed it open, stole resources and scrawled graffiti all over the interior walls. The museum was closed until further notice, and the wrecked site was abandoned. Now from what I gather, the locals of Luarca wanted to see the museum restored, but it took a few years of stalled negotiations with authorities and a perennial lack of funding before any progress was made. Finally, in July 2022, after eight years of failed attempts to get the giant squid museum back up and running again, the exhibition reopened in what used to be a nightclub. For years, the Museum of Giant Squid was directed by a marine scientist named Luis Laria. Let me put it like this he told an interviewer a few years ago. The museum is cursed. I have dedicated my whole life and my best efforts and it's come to nothing. I will not hesitate to say that giant squid are making me sick because of everything I've had to go through. Personally, I am becoming disgusted with squid because I've dedicated my life to them and they've only given me disappointments in return.
This was during the eight-year interim in which the museum was closed. But in another interview, when the former nightclub had finally been chosen as the new venue for the exhibitions of Giant Squid, even then Dr. Laria said, After all these vicissitudes, without there being any kind of appreciation, encouragement or interest in the museum. Now I don't care if they do one thing or another. They can plonk it in a disco, or they can put it in a spaceship and send it to Mars. I don't care. So Dr. Luis Laria has gone through the ringer, it seems. And it strikes me as cruel that such a well-meaning museum should be so blighted by disasters. That it should be cursed. But a giant squid-shaped dream is a hard dream to hold on to. To commit yourself to the largest creatures of the deepest parts of the ocean. Or maybe it's asking for trouble. Asking for sorrows. Asking for regrets. For many years the giant squid was considered a scourge that came up from the deepest parts of the underwater realm in order to attack ships and bring terror to those at surface level. The Kraken, a mythological version of the giant squid, is the perfect example. For centuries it was the symptom of sailors' greatest fears. And it's just misunderstood. Giant squid prefer to stay in the deep. In general, they only come up when they're sick. Which is to say that the seafarers saw only the weakest version of them. And still they found it so terrifying that it made them hysterical. A squid is a smart creature. For example, research on one squid species suggests that they have 30 different lobes in their brains. Specialised centres that can process visual information, change the squid's outer appearance, and can store memories. I'd like to know the sorts of things a squid remembers, and how that affects the way they contemplate the world. You know, scientists have made a short list of creatures that they reckon experience grief. And squid aren't on there yet. But if they have keen memories, would they not also recognise and interpret loss? And if other animals can retain a range of memories, why would we not think that they can collate them and process them through narrative? Isn't that how our own skills with language developed, at least in part? Isn't that how we string together the yarns that as a species we so earnestly like to spin? Each round of research I read seems to increase the likelihood that the critters around us are more complex, brilliant and well adapted than we previously thought. 
I wonder if we won't someday develop a technique for delving more deeply into the cognitive activity of cephalopods and discover that they too have language. We might find that just like we have about them, squid have been storytellers this whole time. About a thousand years ago, the king of Norway decided to impart his knowledge in a manuscript called the Konungskogja. He mentioned a mysterious sea creature, a stupendously large monster, which sailors might confuse for an island if they weren't careful. Similar fearsome figures were described by the Icelandic bards who created their nation's epic sagas, most of which were written down in that same era, a millennium or so ago. Their sea monsters were capable of eating whales, ships, people, anything they could get their giant gobs around, really. It isn't until a manuscript dated to a couple of centuries later that we can read the infamous word, Kraken, which comes from an old Norse word meaning crooked or wonky, a truly wonderful name. It seems that all these amateur folklorists were grasping for a way to describe the same thing, a sea monster of incredible proportions. It was the fantasy novelist Jules Verne who brought the Kraken its international notoriety. He wrote a book called 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which confuses me because I think that that's about 100,000 kilometres, which is not a possible amount of depth to travel on this planet, but anyway, Jules sent his fictitious sailors on a journey in an early submarine called the Nautilus, the Nautilus being a cephalopod, of course, a distant cousin of the squid. The narrator of this sci-fi style story described their encounter with a squid of colossal dimensions. A horrible monster worthy of a place among the most far-fetched teratological legends. It waved its brawny arms about sometimes clasping them around the submarine. Its colour changed like the stage at a music festival, and it silently clucked its beak in front of the captain and his crew. What a freak of nature, the narrator declared. 
Imagine if he'd seen the ancestors of some of these monsters. Diplomacerus Maximum, for example. An ammonite. A now extinct type of cephalopod with tentacles and a shell. It was about 1.5 metres long and its shape was almost exactly like a paperclip. The array of shells these early cephalopods had contained an astonishing diversity. Curled, curved, coiled, conical. And some of them were bloody enormous. There are 300 species of squid currently alive, 100 different octopus, 120 cuttlefish, 6 nautiluses. Freaks of nature, far-fetched teratological legends, every one of them really. We're not yet sure how many there have been in history, and in fact it's likely that our list of existing cephalopods will continue to expand as we figure out more about the biomass of the ocean. It's tempting to want to have all these marine creatures, living and extinct, strung up and preserved in grog and put behind glass cases. I'm a frequent visitor of museums. I am much more likely to see sea creatures like squid in an exhibition than I am to go diving and see them underwater. I couldn't find anyone who would fund my trip to the Museo del Calamar Gigante, but I would go a long way out of my way to see it. I guess it would almost be a site of pilgrimage for me these days. And if someone would curate an exhibition of all the sea life that has ever existed... I'd be very keen to visit. A museum of extraordinary beings in an unusual habitat. A museum of the deep ocean in deep time. Not so many years before 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea was published, Herman Melville's Moby Dick came out. It's one of my favourite books. Surely the greatest work of literature on marine themes ever to be published. The narrator of that novel is called Ishmael, and perhaps no one since has done a better job of explaining human psychology at sea. In chapter 59, the ship in search of the white whale comes across a giant squid, or at least its crew is pretty sure they do. So rarely is it beheld, says Ishmael about what they think they see. So rarely is it beheld that though one and all of them declare it to be the largest animated thing in the ocean, yet very few of them have any but the most vague ideas concerning its true nature and form. In the 1990s, a diver took an exceptional photo of what was believed to be a giant squid, stretching out in the perpetual twilight of an upper layer of the ocean of southern Japan. One person who saw this photo in an obscure textbook was Richard Ellis, who later in the same decade wrote a book called In Search for the Giant Squid. He thought that in this unlikely source, 
he'd seen the most elusive image in natural history. It was believed that no one had really had a face-to-face encounter with a giant squid in the deep as yet. But it turned out that it was not the giant squid in that picture. It was Onikia robusta, the robust club hook squid, a creature of much smaller dimensions, although still an impressive animal. And it's still a great photo. Although the club hook squid was probably crook given the way it floated dismally so close to the surface. Whatever the case, for Richard Ellis, this came as a relief. Fortunately for those who have devoted their lives to searching for Architeuthis, for the giant squid. This was only a case of mistaken identity, he wrote. Deep down, he wanted the giant squid to remain elusive. To escape, at least, modern technologies or media. It's as if for some of us, creatures like the kraken, like werewolves and the yeti and the bunyip, they are not exactly meant to be known. Maybe in the human heart there is a need for mystery, for unexplained things and unseen presences. In Iceland, there is a sea monster museum which willfully includes animals that do not exist as well as those that are proven to be real. I think that's a pretty good approach. We don't need to whittle down our contemplations of life on Earth to the sheer facts. I like how Richard Ellis puts it. There's not that much known, but there's a lot you can write about what's not known, why it's not known, and who doesn't know it. far below the surface of the water. In a lightless zone that is almost entirely without oxygen as well. A dark, crimson creature floats about, drifts slothfully in the slowly shifting waters. When provoked, it shoots out fireworks of glistening fluorescent mucus to confuse its enemies down there in that cold obscurity. Its eyes are enormous, giant crystal balls set into the middle of its intimidating head. Had we been given a chance, we would, for centuries, have been terrified by it. 
I mean, when we finally got around to it, at the end of the 19th century, when a scientist first dredged this eccentric cephalopod up from the deep sea, he named it Vampirotuthus infernalis. The vampire squid straight out of hell. It does wear a cloak over its arms, kind of like something in Dracula's style. Yet the vampire squid is the most harmless of all the cephalopods. Its defense mechanism is pure bluff. It rolls itself up, raises its arms, and reveals a spiny protective barrier. But it can do no harm. It's pretty small, actually, about 30 centimeters long. It's not even a carnivore. It lives off marine snow. All the organic matter that gradually falls from the upper layers of the ocean. To catch this, the vampire squid has two long, sticky filaments. It has these instead of tentacles, so it isn't technically a squid. Which matters. Because it turns out that Vampirotuthus represents an ancient evolutionary lineage. Its ancestors have been found in fossils that are 300 million years old. Because it lives so deep in the ocean, in an environment that has barely changed in all that time, the vampire squid hasn't needed to update its way of being since. Still, harmless old codger that it is, If it ever, throughout its history, had strayed closer to the surface of the ocean and come into contact with humans, we would have surely cast it as a subaqueous Satan and probably hurled harpoons at it. There's still a lot we don't know about vampire squid because capturing them alive to put them in an aquarium is hard yakka. They're fairly picky about their habitat, and forcing them from their safe place in the bathosphere is a precarious process. But about a decade ago, in Monterey Bay, California, there was a vampire squid on display, for the first time ever. And by chance, I was there then. The guide who took me around the aquarium was a small, thin man with hunched shoulders and round, wire-rimmed glasses and the shadow of a moustache. We wandered past the sea otters, the starfish and the sea turtles and the nudibranchs, and we made our way to where the vampire squid sat in its dark tank. We stood by it for a long while. It really did seem like a mystical being. Or if not that, then something computer-generated. The cephalopod called a blood-sucking squid from hell sat fairly still, but slowly turned a somersault in place. The guide reeled off the facts, but his voice trailed off. I feel sorry for him, you know, he said. This must be a hell of a lonely life. 
and we misunderstand him so badly. Look how gentle he is. Would it be less lonely way down there in the deep, I asked, in such a large space that's so little occupied with life? And being the last left in its genus? It must feel isolated, surely, I said. It's true, the guide replied. You know, love affairs down there, they're few and far between. He explained that we still don't know much about the reproductive habits of vampire squid, but it seemed that on meeting the male would transfer a packet of sperm to the female with a sort of funnel, and the female could store all that in a pouch until she was ready to have her eggs fertilised, and she only ever did a few eggs at a time, which could happen on multiple occasions throughout her life, but only when she had enough energy to spawn again. And that, I supposed, might take time, given the slow metabolism of the vampire squid, I wondered how pairs of them found each other to mate, given that they were spread across such a vast habitat. Well, we don't know that, the guide said. But then again, we don't know how many of them there are down there. Maybe they're bumping and grinding all over the place. But I doubt it. I was told that we still don't know how long vampire squid live, even. But in a way, the guide went on with a little chuckle. In a way, their lifestyles seem idyllic. The slow-motion romance. The simple diet. No job, just catching what you can. What about all that solitude? I asked the guide. Can be good for you, he replied. A bit of alone time can be good for you. I guess we were finding it hard to pull ourselves away from the vampire squid. I could tell her that it was one of the guide's favourite parts of the exhibition, showing off this creature that had been so rarely seen by humans. From what I understood, they only showed him for a few months, this vampire squid. Maybe he died after that, I'm not sure. But while we stood there, I was thinking about the future. What about this crisis we're having with the climate? I wondered aloud. I suppose they must be kind of protected down there. If in 300 million years the deep sea hasn't changed enough that the vampire squids had to adapt, surely they'll be okay now too. But no, the guide said. It's all connected. Even the decline of sea ice these days affects what's going on in these low-oxygen zones. 
We're finding dead patches down there already, he said. And at that moment, one of the vampire squid's long, sticky filaments brushed against something in its tank. And it suddenly made a start, ducking back to check what it was. Making an erratic movement that must also be one of its defence mechanisms. Yet today, when I think of the vampire squid, I remember not only the individual specimen back in Monterey Bay, I remember the guide as well. A weird, awkward, kind of sad dude. A bloke who was very comfortable with solitude. Sometimes I've wondered if he wasn't hoping to be reincarnated. As a vampire squid, of course. Maybe he longs to get down there into the deep. Into the dark, lonely ocean. To slowly turn his somersaults. Move ever so gradually. And finally, to bump into someone he could love. The writer Donna Haraway has invented a term for what she says is a quality we need in modern times. Tentacular thinking. Thinking in the manner of tentacles. The essay in which she writes this is complex, but that may not be beside the point, because for Donna Haraway, the times are troubled. The answers aren't clear. The word tentacle, we are reminded, comes from the Latin word to feel or to try. Maybe I'm getting this all wrong, but it seems to me that tentacle-like thinking means that our minds might slowly extend into unknown places, probing, fumbling, slowly getting a grip on things. Our imaginings are webbed and braided, as Donna Haraway describes it. Like the intricate tangled threads of fungi, or the root networks of forests, or the overlapped layers of different generations. It's one of those essays that makes you read it a few times. I've read it about seven times. It'll take a bit more figuring out. Yet it seems to me that cephalopod stories spread around the world in a tentacular way. For example, let's take the tradition of the Ainu, Japan's indigenous people. 
they have a kind of divine giant octopus who is both feared and revered. Its name is Atkor Kamui. Story goes that it was a giant spider monster that rampaged people a bit too long and got tossed into Uchiura Bay by a benevolent sea god. When its tentacles are spread out, Atkokamui is said to be a hectare in size. It can swallow ships or even whales. Fishermen feared it. They would try and appease it with offerings of seafood and would also take scythes on their fishing trips. Yet Atkokamui could also be a protector. Part monster and part god is how one friend explains it to me. Across the Pacific there are also giant cephalopod divinities, like Kanaloa in Hawaii, or Tefekia Mutorangi. One tradition tells that parts of New Zealand were formed by a battle between a Maori warrior and the Feke, whose eyes formed two islands in Cook Strait. The long tentacles of this giant octopus stretch across the Pacific, perhaps a metaphor for trade routes between islands. Certainly, in a feeler-like fashion, the tales seem to travel through archipelagos, spanning the open seas. Then there's also a cephalopod sort of god, living deep in the Pacific in the sci-fi writings of H.P. Lovecraft. This is called the Cthulhu, which can also be pronounced the Clulu. The writer himself apparently pronounced it a couple of different ways, so I won't feel guilty about almost certainly getting it wrong. With its scaly, rubbery body, flabby claws, an awful squid head and a face full of writhing tentacles, the Cthulhu waits dreaming. And across the stories of H.P. Lovecraft, its cult is worshipped in various distant locations around the world. But this is how stories extend. It's how they get a feel for the spirit of the times. So many great mythological stories have this quality of tentacularity, not just those about cephalopods. They are stories that go beyond genre, but straight into the human psyche. They're not sacred nor secular, and they do not rely strictly on facts. They just have to ring true for the listener. For communities, for eons. Fables of all sorts have proven to be the truest stories of them all. You can find these tales anywhere and everywhere. They're all over the place. Traditional, spiritual, educational. Or otherwise. Like this one. There once was a small cuttlefish who took great pleasure in changing colour and texture. You should have seen all he could do. Polymorphic and technicoloured. Well-groomed and buff, this little fellow was bold and proud and loudly dressed. Even a peacock would be envious. 
Of course, human observers noticed it. They'd named him the flamboyant cuttlefish, and he certainly identified as this. In his psychedelic purple outfits, he'd strut about the seafloor, till one day he was dragged up by a diver in the Philippines, a tourist doing a scuba diving course. In his day job, this tourist was a music television producer, and he saw potential in setting the flamboyant cuttlefish's shimmering skin to music and putting it up on stage. They'd pump the pop music and the cuttlefish would dance in his tank. The most popular part of their act was when the cuttlefish danced to the Britney Spears song Toxic. But eventually the show got old. The producer didn't update the act. He went bankrupt. He blamed the star of the show. And in frustration he killed the flamboyant cuttlefish. Sliced him up. Beer battered him and tossed him on a hot skillet. But as he ate his evil dinner, the producer got his comeuppance. He choked and gagged and fell on the floor and died. Because in fact, the flesh of the flamboyant cuttlefish is poisonous to humans. Before he carked it, the producer might have had the lyrics of the famous song ringing in his ears. Don't you know that you're toxic? Once it was, and once it wasn't. There was a tropical pygmy squid who got a bit hot under the gills because of something he'd heard. Word had spread, and you should know that gossip goes round the ocean at a surprising rate. Word had spread that there was such a thing as a museum for giant squid. And the tropical pygmy squid was furious about this. Why should that great big lump with its horrible goggly eyes, that brutal beast, that maleficent monster, why should it have a museum and not the pygmy squid? What's so great about being the biggest cephalopod on the planet when you could be the smallest? The tropical pygmy squid started to try and form a committee to get an exhibit of pygmy squid up and running. It gathered together all the little squids in the sea. And the idea of this little idiosepia seemed to have caught on. All these other minute critters, each of them hardly bigger than a single dried chickpea, they decided that they deserved to be honoured in a human-made cephalopod hall of fame. They had a business plan and everything all ready to go, but it came to a grinding halt when they approached the southern pygmy squid for his input. He was a distant cousin, but he was Australian. What are you whackers so bloody worked up about? Why do you give a starfish's clacker about this museum malarkey? Why do you want to get pinned up in a glass case with a friggin' plaque underneath you, and those mongrel apes gawking at you all day long. Well, off you go, little tropical pygmy squid. Off you go if that's what you really want. But as for me, I'm happy down here out of harm's way. As far as I'm concerned, mate. 
you're just acting a little bit troppo. Here is a story. A story it is. A couple of years ago, scientists in California successfully mixed squid DNA with human cells. They wanted to use the squid's photoreceptive genes to make our cells more transparent so that radiologists could work on them more easily. But we can see where they might go further down the track. The scientists, said one of their peers, have opened the door for genetic and cellular engineering of biophotonics. That's right. They're going to work out how to make human skin flash and shimmer with the whole suite of chromatophores, leucophores and reflectins. We'll be able to camouflage ourselves, distract our enemies, do the vanishing act. With a bit of luck, we'll all be part human, part squid. No, there's no end to the tales that might be told. The tentacles spreading and sprawling across the seas, stretching deep into them, and on to land as well, it seems. in Luarca because we have lost. Then we decided to spend the night there. In the morning we got surprise, so beautiful, cosy and romantic as the town. Walking by the little marina, we found a Calypso company owned by Paco. We decided to make one of the tours offered by Paco. We really enjoy it. It was amazing. He showed us amazing place and also told histories about the oldies times about the village. We decided to stay two more days. Next year we'll be back. It was a great discovery. Such is the report of some intrepid travellers who stumbled their way through northern Spain earlier this year and found the beautiful, cosy, and romantic town of Luarca. But you'll notice there is no mention of El Museo, del Calamar Gigante. Surely Paco might have suggested it on his tour. But I suppose the travellers will be back next year, so hopefully they can squeeze in a squiz at the giant squid. It's surely worth it. Luarca's local tourism organisation spruiks it as a dive to the seabed 
to discover the life and habitat of the largest cephalopods in the world. We'll not leave you indifferent, they promise. The museum is open from Wednesday to Sunday, 10.30am to 1.30pm, 3 euros per person, under 13s for free. Come on, my friends. If you're anywhere near northern Spain, please can you go to this museum. It's a bloody miracle that it's up and running again. And if they're in season, for 18 euros 50, you can order local calamares in su tinta, squid ink squid, at the Restaurante Via Blanca, right next door. Although you can rest assured that this won't be made from giant squid because the taste of their flesh is tainted with the ammonium chloride they produce to control their buoyancy. So there's probably no amount of garlic or hot sauce that could disguise that varnish taste. I return then to the words of the accursed Dr. Luis Laria, former curator of El Museo del Calamar Gigante in Luarca, Spain. You see, Dr. Laria's researches have not been confined to the subject of the giant squid. And although that bloody museum broke his heart, I read that Dr. Laria has continued to work in the field of ecology, in education trying to teach his compatriots how to care for other creatures and how we can coexist within a changing climate in a time of crisis. Despite everything, he's still devoted to an understanding of the world which is built upon an appreciation of the complexities of our ecosystems. I must say, from this distance at least, I quite like Dr. Laria. He seems like a bit of a character, a man passionate about his science. Someone I could imagine having a heartfelt debate with over a few glasses of wine. And a man unafraid of introducing new and difficult ideas into our conversations about the relationships we have with the other creatures in our midst. We can no longer call animals irrational beings, says Dr. Leria. Once we believed that they did not think, but that was because we were ignorant. Some research suggests that there's more going on in the brains of bottlenosed dolphins than in our own. There are marine creatures that show awareness of emotional issues. That's more than we can say sometimes of the more prominent examples of our own species. Eventually, Dr. Laria says, we will realise that we've committed all sorts of outrages against animals whom we have considered inferior for no legitimate reason. We are not aware of the damage we're causing. I have been following these tentacle trails and toothological paths for a while now. I feel like I've been left with more questions than answers. Like, in Spain they put this giant squid museum in an old nightclub. 
But couldn't they still throw a few dance parties in there amongst the specimen cases? Just wondering. You know, so many mysteries remain.